The other great bodies of the universe, we observe in all of them enough to raise our curiosity, but not to satisfy it. It does not appear to be suitable to the wisdom that shines throughout all of nature to suppose that we should see so far and have our curiosity so much raised only to be disappointed in the end. This, therefore, naturally leads us to consider our present state is only the dawn or beginning of our existence. These are the words of Scottish mathematician Colin Maclaurin, spoken centuries ago. Yet his words are as true today as when he uttered them in the 1700s. Today, humanity stands poised on the precipice of a new frontier for science and technology. That frontier is the planet Mars. The moment that human beings set foot on the red planet and begin their exploration in earnest will be one of the major events in human history and it will mark a paradigm shift for our species. But we have yet to take the final leap. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. In episodes 7 and 8 of this podcast, we explored the history of humanity's fascination with Mars, from science fiction to science fact from astronomy on Earth to robotic missions to the surface. We considered differing plans for sending human beings to the red planet. But today, we'll be talking about what will happen after human beings finally reach Mars. It will be a chance to answer a question that has preoccupied human beings for centuries. Does life exist elsewhere, beyond the Earth? Is there some form of organic life indigenous to Mars? And if so, does it bear any resemblance to life on Earth? We'll also take a close look at what the day-to-day -day lives of human explorers might be like on Mars. We'll find out what is required for human beings to survive and thrive on the surface of an alien world, hundreds of millions of miles away from our home planet. We'll look at the psychological challenges and the spiritual triumphs of life at the cutting edge of a new frontier. We hope you'll join us today as we conceive of an adventure so grand it will defy the scope of human imagination. journey to a literal new world is not entirely without precedent for humanity. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. In the summer of 1969, television audiences all around the world watched as Neil Armstrong took the first steps on the surface of the moon. Among those watching this historic moment was an adolescent named Robert Zubrin. Like many young people in 1969, he was captivated when he saw that science fiction was rapidly becoming science fact, right before his eyes. He went on to become a teacher, but the lure of space exploration lingered in his mind as the years passed, and he eventually went back to school, studying aeronautics, astronautics, and nuclear physics, 
eventually earning a Ph.D. in nuclear engineering. Perhaps it was his destiny to become one of the greatest aerospace and astrospace engineers of our time, and the greatest champion of manned space exploration of all time. In 1989, Dr. Zubrin found himself working at an aerospace company called Martin Marietta. President George H.W. Bush had just proposed the Space Exploration Initiative, an elaborate $450 billion plan to reinvigorate human space exploration. He said it would culminate, eventually, in a human mission to Mars. But Dr. Zubrin thought the initiative was too expensive and that it contained far too many superfluous elements. He was confident there was a more sensible, streamlined way to get human beings to the Red Planet and to make such a mission a reality within a much shorter time frame. So he put together a plan called Mars Direct. The plan involved using basic chemistry to produce rocket fuel on the surface of Mars, using the carbon dioxide present in the Martian atmosphere, and a small amount of hydrogen that would be brought along in the spacecraft. This entire process would be done in an unmanned habitat, sent to Mars in advance of the astronauts, who would arrive many months later. Thus, with the launch of two separate spaceships, astronauts would have everything they needed to explore the surface of Mars for about a year before returning home in their fully-fueled spacecraft. Many at NASA praised Dr. Zubrin's plan as a stroke of genius, but others at NASA were threatened by it. The Space Exploration Initiative satisfied every niche within NASA's hulking bureaucracy, while, in contrast, Mars Direct did not. It was the best, cheapest, and most efficient way to get human beings to Mars but it was not the best way to satisfy every faction at NASA. It wasn't the first time that political challenges stood in the way of sending human beings to the Red Planet. In 1969, when human beings landed on the moon for the first time, the brilliant Werner von Braun gave a presentation on Mars missions suggesting that with strong national effort, human beings would walk on Mars by the 1980s. Nuclear engines had even been tested in the Nevada desert as a means of propulsion for the mission. It had been called NERVA, Nuclear Engine for Rocket Vehicle Application. But leaders in both houses of Congress did not want to make any such financial commitment, and President Richard Nixon said privately, quote, I don't give a damn about space. A 1969 Soviet Children's Almanac wrote, quote, It is indisputable that before the end of this century, people will be able to visit not only the moon, but the closest planets, such as Mars and Venus, end quote. The Soviet Union built their massive N-1 rocket for manned interplanetary missions, but the project was scrapped after the American Apollo missions landed on the moon. In 1969, America's political leaders in the White House and Congress failed to seize an opportunity to take the next great leap in human exploration. Decades later, the entrenched bureaucracy of NASA itself failed once again to seize that same opportunity. 
even though it had been served up to them on a silver platter with Mars Direct. Since the early 1990s, Dr. Zubrin has continued his passionate advocacy for manned missions to Mars. When I asked Dr. Zubrin about why NASA's plans for such missions seem to have stagnated for so long, this is what he had to say. So NASA was born as a mission-driven organization, Apollo. Okay. But post-Apollo, it became a typical organization whose uh, interests in preserving its own existence tended to um, prevail over the idea of, of, of accomplishing something. I, in other words, Actually, when I proposed Mars Direct, I was approached by a middle-level NASA official and told me, scientists, look, you know, uh, there's something you need to understand. The last thing NASA would want is to get to Mars in 10 years. Um, wow. Okay. Now, that was a somewhat cynical point of view, and there are certainly many people in NASA who would have loved to get to Mars in 10 years. But the bureaucracy as a whole, if you view NASA as an organism, Okay, it wasn't in its interest to get to Mars in 10 years. Yet even though NASA refused to adopt Dr. Zubrin's plan, his contribution to human space exploration has been enormous. He went on to found a nonprofit organization called the Mars Society. And roughly two decades ago, Dr. Zubrin inspired a young entrepreneur to dedicate his life to space exploration with the explicit goal of getting human beings to Mars. Three, two, one. That entrepreneur was none other than Elon Musk. Today, Musk's company SpaceX is working on testing a state-of-the-art craft called Starship, a reusable spacecraft made out of stainless steel. Fully loaded, it might carry 50 to 100 passengers. If all goes well, in just a few years, perhaps a decade, SpaceX starships might very well carry the first human crews to Mars. Though no one can say for sure, there might very well be delays in the development of such a vehicle. This is the case with any new rocket or spacecraft. In November of 2019, a fuel tank pressurization test on a Starship prototype resulted in an explosion that blew off the top portion of the vehicle. Much more recently, on April 3rd of 2020, the hull of another Starship prototype gave way during a test, crumbling and imploding on itself. As always, we can expect Musk not to be discouraged and to press on. But why should Mars be the next step in human space exploration? Why should the United States, NASA, SpaceX, or any organization, public or private, set this as their goal? The current President of the United States has already announced plans to return astronauts to the Earth's moon by 2024. And after all, the moon is much closer to the Earth than Mars. With chemical rocket propulsion, the moon is a journey of just a few days. Getting to Mars will take six to nine months. We asked Dr. Zubrin about the importance of Mars exploration, and he had this to say. 
I mean, there's two things that make Mars of great interest. One is science. It's the Rosetta Stone for letting us know the truth about uh, the potential uh, prevalence and diversity of life in the universe. And the other is Mars is the new frontier where a new branch of human civilization uh, can be born and where humanity can begin transforming itself into a space-faring species. It will be far more difficult for human beings to travel to Mars than the moon, but Mars is a far better location to search for life. In the 20th century, American astronauts landed in six separate locations on the moon and all appeared to be virtually sterile. With no atmosphere, the moon's surface is either as hot as an oven during the day or more frigid than the coldest evenings on Earth during its night cycle. In contrast, Mars has a thin atmosphere as well as weather. And while it is quite cold, it almost certainly once had vast amounts of liquid water flowing over its surface. In its past, it was likely much warmer, as evidenced by its dry riverbeds with their meandering channels and tributaries. The impact craters on the Martian surface appear to have been made in wet mud rather than dry soil. Even today, the planet has vast amounts of frozen water ice in the ice caps at its north and south poles and elsewhere below its red, dusty soil. In 2018, a subglacial lake was discovered, consisting of liquid water buried beneath a shell of ice. The lake is some 20 kilometers or about 12 miles wide. Water is fundamental because virtually everywhere on Earth that we find liquid water, we also find organic life. The Earth's axial tilt is about 23.5 degrees. The axial tilt of Mars is very similar, about 25 degrees. As a result, over the course of a Martian year, the red planet experiences seasons, just like the Earth does. A day on Mars is about the same length as a day on Earth about 24 and a half hours. Out of all the planets in the solar system, Mars is the most like the Earth. Some might say that human beings should be content to send robotic probes remotely controlled from the Earth, but simply sending a single message to such probes is a tedious process. Depending on the positions of Earth and Mars as they orbit the Sun, it can take as long as 20 minutes for a human being to send a simple command to a rover on Mars. The robotic vehicles move slowly and deliberately to ensure that they do not tip over, get stuck in the soil, or miss the chance to explore a feature of scientific interest. Humans are more agile, more intelligent, and more mobile than even the most sophisticated of robots. The American Opportunity Rover covered 26 miles on Mars in just over a decade. Human beings equipped with a similar, larger vehicle could cover the same distance on Mars in just one day. Dr. Joel S. Levine is a planetary scientist with a career spanning four decades, and he has published over 150 scientific journal articles. He concurs with Dr. Zubrin that the search for life on Mars is of paramount importance. Dr. Levine says that it will have profound implications to humanity's broader understanding of biology, our understanding of microbiology, combating diseases, 
and human health. One cannot deny that some of these concerns are particularly pressing during the current global pandemic that the people of Earth are facing today. Dr. Levine says that Mars exploration is fundamental for another reason. It might be instrumental to our understanding of climate change on our own planet Earth. What if human explorers find no evidence of any form of life on Mars when they begin to explore the surface of the planet, even microbial life? Will the entire search have been a worthless waste of immense money, manpower, and intellectual resources? Hardly. Perhaps one microbiologist said it best. The late Professor Wolf Vishniak, decades ago, said that if Mars were a lifeless world, it would be a classic example of the experimental group and the control group. Mars is very similar to the planet Earth, and the fundamental elements of life seem to be common throughout the universe. If we find no evidence of life on Mars, it will reveal that the very phenomena of life might be rarer and more precious than we previously thought. Microbes existed all over the Earth for billions of years in our planet's history, long before plants or animals made their first appearance on the land. So it would be quite confounding if we didn't find any microbes on Mars. Regardless of whether we find life, or if we don't, the implications will be profound. But we'll certainly never find life on Mars if we don't first go there and take a look. For well over a century, the prospects for life on Mars have captured humanity's imagination and curiosity. In the early 1900s, American astronomer Percival Lowell believed he saw enormous artificial canals on the Martian surface, built by a dying super-civilization. Many of his fellow astronomers were skeptical, and the telescopes of Lowell's day were crude. Today, we understand that no such canals or any similar constructions exist on Mars. But simply making the journey to Mars to search for life is one that has proven perilous, even for robotic space probes. Roughly half of all the robotic craft ever sent to Mars have failed somewhere along the way. Mars 1, launched by the Soviet Union in 1962, suffered a radio failure just a few months into its mission. Mariner 3, launched by the United States two years later, lost power in outer space when its solar panels failed to properly deploy. Mariner 4 successfully sent back a few photos in 1965. The Soviet Mars 2 mission was even more ambitious than America's Mariner program. It sought to land. But the tiny craft crashed into the surface in 1971. It wasn't until 1976 that any nation had a successful landing on Mars. This time, the credit went to the United States. America's Viking landers touched down on the surface and scooped up some dry, sandy soil, analyzing it in what was known as the Life Detection Experiment. Dr. Gilbert Levin 
the principal investigator of the Viking mission, claims that the experiment established there was indeed microscopic life on Mars, and that there is circumstantial evidence that supports this notion. In fact, two out of the three microbiology experiments on the Viking landers appeared to yield positive results. The late astronomer Carl Sagan said this about the search for life on Mars. Quote, The results have been tantalizing, annoying, provocative, stimulating, and inconclusive. Unfortunately, there were many scientists that ultimately found the results of the Viking experiments inconclusive. The Viking landers also provided us with a wealth of photographic data both from the planet's surface and from Martian orbit. In combing through this data, computer engineers under contract at NASA looking at black and white Viking images found something puzzling. In a photo taken from Mars orbit, there was what appeared to be a face in a region called Cydonia. It had large eyes, a small slit of a nose, and a flat mouth. Over a mile in length, the feature was massive. Some even claimed that there were geological features nearby resembling artificially constructed pyramids. In the 1990s, the Mars Global Surveyor mission photographed the features again in far higher resolution, revealing an ordinary-looking tabletop mesa. This time, the features didn't appear to look much like a face. The image in the previous photograph was likely the result of a phenomenon called periodolia, the tendency of the human mind to find familiar-looking shapes and patterns, often faces, in otherwise abstract images. But the supposed face was not the only peculiar image to be returned from Mars. In 1989, a Soviet space probe called Phobos-2 traveled in orbit around Mars. A total of 13 European nations and the United States participated in the mission, which planned to study one of Mars's moons, Phobos. We know that Mars has two small, rocky, misshapen natural satellites in orbit around it, Phobos and Deimos, though Phobos is much larger than Deimos. While the Phobos-2 craft returned several photos from orbit, contact with the probe was lost due to a computer error. One of its photographs came across something peculiar, a long, dark patch on the surface of Mars. Some referred to it as a shadow because surface features could be seen through it. In 1991, retired Soviet Air Force Colonel Marina Popovich held a press conference at the Russian consulate in San Francisco where she revealed the final photograph taken by the space probe. It showed the Martian moon Phobos against the black backdrop of outer space, and in the foreground, a long, thin, opaque object, what Colonel Popovich called an unidentified flying object, or a UFO. 
images like the final photo taken by Phobos II, as well as the supposed face seen in the Viking pictures, have provided endless fodder for conspiracy theorists and are every bit as intriguing as Lowell's imagined canals. They've shown that well into the 20th century, fantasies about intelligent civilizations on Mars persist. But such claims about extraterrestrial beings require equally compelling evidence to support them, and a few grainy photographs are hardly sufficient. Though such strange anecdotes do reveal that Mars still captivates the human imagination. It is a mysterious world, and even sending robotic explorers there is a dangerous and difficult exercise. It seems highly unlikely that we will find any alien spacecraft or extraterrestrial monuments, and yet, in an adventure such as this, surely there are bound to be surprises. As mathematician Colin McLaren said, we observe in the planets enough to raise our curiosity, but not to satisfy it. And it doesn't seem suitable to think we shall have our curiosity raised so much, only for us to be disappointed in the end. We know today that sending human beings to Mars, rather than robots, will bring new challenges. In a 2019 blog post from the European Space Agency, or ESA, they stated that it is not simply a matter of having spacecraft capable of taking human beings to Mars, but being able to protect human beings from potentially lethal radiation. Outer space is filled with cosmic rays, charged particles from outside our solar system, whizzing through space at nearly the speed of light. On Earth, our atmosphere and magnetic field protects us from them. In space, they pass right through us. The sun also ejects dangerous streams of charged particles into outer space, which could be dangerous as well. The atmosphere of Mars is one one-hundredth as thick as the Earth's, so it doesn't provide the same protection from radiation. One of the members of an ESA team tasked with investigating the threat of radiation said, quote, As it stands today, we still can't go to Mars due to radiation. It would be impossible to meet acceptable dose limits. So what are acceptable dose limits? NASA technically has no dose limits for missions in interplanetary space at all. This is because there are not currently any astronauts traveling in interplanetary space. NASA's dose limits for missions in low Earth orbit state that if a mission statistically increases the astronaut's risk of cancer by more than 3%, the organization will not permit it. Dr. Zubrin is an authority on the subject of radiation. Not only does he have a doctorate in nuclear engineering, but he worked for the Office of Radiation Protection in Washington State. He says that radiation concerns raised by some space agencies, including NASA, are downright alarmist. That exposure to radiation on a manned mission to Mars is not the showstopper that so many have claimed. So this is voluntary. And anyway, the radiation risk, if you want to know, of going to Mars and back, uh, based on the best models we have, and which are very conservative models, by the way, uh, it's about a 1% risk of getting a fatal cancer sometime later in your life, assuming that there's no advance in medical technique in the next quarter century. And the, uh, so 
it's really a modest portion of total mission risk. Okay, uh, it is a much lower risk than tens of millions of people voluntarily assume by smoking. Um, you know, because the average American smoker adds a 20% risk of fatal cancer to themselves, just for whatever pleasure they get out of smoking, um, as opposed to the joy you would get out of being the first human on Mars. Okay. But it is a modest portion of total mission risk, as proven, by the way, by the fact that um, there's, at this point, about a dozen people, astronauts and Russian cosmonauts, who have, because of extended durations on the space station, actually received cosmic ray doses comparable to what they would have gotten going to Mars and back. And we see no radiological health effects on these people. To be sure, human explorers traveling to Mars will be on a dangerous journey overall. But there is a vast difference between acknowledging these risks and dwelling upon them. Ultimately, the rewards of going on such an adventure far outweigh any risks, and radiation is likely to be the least of these risks. While human explorers in special habitats and spacesuits will be more than capable of surviving on the surface of Mars, it is undeniably a world with conditions far more severe and far more extreme than those on the planet Earth. Compared to our own world, the surface is certainly bombarded with far more radiation, even in the daytime, temperatures are typically well below the freezing point of water in most regions. At first glance, such an environment might seem inhospitable to all life, but there are many forms of life on Earth that survive and even thrive in such intense conditions. We call them extremophiles. If we wish to speculate on what life might be like on the planet Mars, we must consider the diversity and resilience of life on our own planet Earth. An entire universe, an unseen realm of diverse life exists all around us, right here on Earth, too small to be seen with the naked eye. Let us consider tardigrades. They are a phylum of extremely tiny animals, about half a millimeter or less than half an inch in length, with segmented bodies, eight legs equipped with tiny appendages resembling claws, and a round mouth that looks something like a suction cup. When observed waddling around under microscopes, their gait looks something like that of an overweight bear. Hence the reason that tardigrades were originally named water bears when they were first discovered in the 1700s. There are over 1,000 known species of this animal living in virtually every corner of the planet Earth. From tropical rainforests to the peaks of the Himalayan mountains, tardigrades can survive well above the boiling point of water, up to 148 degrees Celsius or 300 degrees Fahrenheit. They can survive well below the freezing point of water, being frozen in a solid block of ice is not lethal for them. They live in both the coldest regions of the Earth and the hottest. They can survive crushing pressures more intense than those in the deepest parts of the world's oceans. 
They can survive in fresh water, in salt water, in sand and in soil. They can survive without any food or even water. Upon encountering incredibly dry conditions, tardigrades simply curl up into a ball and secrete a simple sugar like an armored cocoon. Then they drastically reduce their metabolism. They can remain alive in the state without water for decades. This is called anhydrobiosis, Greek for life without water. When water returns, the tardigrades wake up, they unfurl, and their metabolism returns to normal. In 2007, tardigrades were taken aboard the American Space Shuttle while it was in orbit around the Earth. The tiny creatures were exposed to the vacuum of outer space. The incredible heat on the daytime side of the Earth and the deep cold on the night side. They had no oxygen, no water, no food. And they were bombarded by radiation. Yet they remained alive for days. And when they were brought back to the Earth, they were perfectly fine. Some of them even reproduced. Decades ago, in Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos, he recalled an experiment where he and his colleagues used special chambers filled with carbon dioxide gas and sealed airtight, then chilled to frigid temperatures and subjected to intense ultraviolet light. The chambers were called Mars jars because they sought to replicate conditions on Mars. Inside, the scientists placed microscopic organisms from the Earth. In each experiment, some microorganisms died in the harsh environment, but some varieties survived. Sagan said, quote, If terrestrial microbes can survive the Martian environment, how much better Martian microbes, if they exist, must do on Mars? I asked Dr. Zubrin what might be required in order for human explorers to find life on Mars. And I asked if we do find it, what sort of questions will this discovery raise? What we need to do to find life on Mars, we'll probably need to drill to reach the groundwater because that's, if there's life on Mars, the most probable place to find it is in underground liquid water. And that requires setting up drilling rigs, getting down there, bringing up water, bringing it to the surface, looking at it, culturing it, seeing if there's anything in it is live and characterizing it because we want to know if there is life on Mars, is it similar to Earth life? Does it use the same genetic alphabet? You know, DNA, RNA? Okay, you know, here we Americans and the French and the Spanish and the Germans, we all use the Latin alphabet. The Russians don't use the same alphabet. They have a Cyrillic alphabet, which is different, but it has a common origin. There are principles of similarity between the two, okay? On the other hand, the Chinese have an alphabet that is totally different and has not had a common origin at all. It works on completely different principles. The, 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 so if there's life on Mars, does it use the Latin alphabet, the Cyrillic alphabet, Chinese alphabet? In other words, does it have a common origin? Okay, uh, or, or not? The question remains, is life fundamentally the same everywhere in the universe, genetically speaking? Or is life on every planet different? If it is indeed the same everywhere, then the concept of 
panspermia becomes plausible. Panspermia is the hypothesis that life might be transported throughout the universe via comets and asteroids, over interplanetary distances, and perhaps even over interstellar distances. It certainly seems plausible that some extremophiles just might be able to survive such a journey. There is much that human beings can do today to prepare for the search for life on the Red Planet. Perhaps there is no better place on Earth where scientists can train and prepare for such a mission than on the remote continent of Antarctica. There is animal life on the coast, but the interior of the continent is an arid landscape of sand, rock, and ice. The coldest temperatures ever recorded on Earth were recorded there. Negative 89 degrees Celsius, or 128 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It is a desolate region that is very Mars-like indeed, though perhaps it is not quite as desolate as it appears at first glance. Another type of extremophiles are known as endoliths, organisms that live inside of rocks. In the dry valleys of Antarctica, we have found one type of endolith called lichen, a tiny community of both fungus and algae, inside the pores of sandstone, where just enough sunlight seeps in and occasionally liquid water from melted ice drips down. It is thought that the rocks might offer some protection from the harsh environment outside. Endoliths don't just live within surface rocks, though. They can be found in groundwater aquifers and caves. Not only that, but deep biosphere endoliths have been found even deeper, buried on the ocean floor and within the deepest mine shafts on Earth. This is one reason Dr. Zubrin tells us that we may need to drill below the surface to find life on Mars. The surface of the planet might seem barren, but it could be teeming with microorganisms just beneath the feet of the first astronaut explorers. In looking to Antarctica as an analog for Mars, there is at least one other form of life there, which we must study very, very closely. Human beings. Today, Antarctica is home to several outposts, the largest of which is McMurdo Station, complete with a harbor, three airfields, a coffee house, two bars, and over 100 separate buildings. During the austral summer, its population can swell to well over a thousand scientists and support personnel. Though many of them leave during the winter, when temperatures plunge, and it is dark for months. Then the population drops to just a few hundred. Perhaps someday in the not-too-distant future, SpaceX might build the equivalent of a McMurdo station on the planet Mars. Actually, Elon Musk has infinitely more ambitious plans for the planet Mars. In the 2020s, he wants to send multiple starships to Mars, carrying crew and cargo with the initial goal of mining and refining water, constructing a propellant plant, and setting up an extensive array of solar panels to generate power. He has made the eyebrow-raising claim that he wants to construct a city 
with a population of one million people on Mars by the year 2050 and reach a point where SpaceX is constructing 100 reusable starships per year. In this scenario, fleets of starships will carry large crews to Mars roughly every two years when the planets align. He wants starships to be as reliable as commercial airliners and for tickets to the Red Planet to be as little as a few hundred thousand dollars. It seems like nothing short of science fiction, or perhaps the word science fiction is too kind. Perhaps it is more like science fantasy. Compare Musk's plan to place a million people on Mars with what humanity has done in Antarctica within the past few decades. Antarctica is a continent roughly the size of Europe. During the summer months, its population tops out at just 4,000 people. And during the winter, it plunges to about 1,000. And it has taken well over half a century to build these permanent outposts and keep people in them, in a place that already has breathable air, where ocean liners and aircraft can carry in supplies. If we haven't yet placed a city of a million people in Antarctica, it seems doubtful that we will do the same on Mars. Yet it would be unwise to underestimate Elon Musk. In the years after he founded SpaceX in 2002, he suffered many setbacks, and there were those in the aerospace industry that confidently predicted his company would quickly fail. It hasn't. Even if he doesn't place a million people on Mars, a McMurdo-like colony of just a thousand people would be one of the most impressive feats in the history of space exploration. And even if we wish to make more modest future predictions, it is certainly plausible to predict that the first human beings will make an expedition to Mars within the coming years. While later colonists on Mars may encounter more comfortable conditions like those at McMurdo Station, the first explorers on the surface of Mars will encounter intense hardships, both physical and psychological. Such is the case for all the first explorers to visit new frontiers where human beings have never before treaded. The first explorers will likely be in small, intimate groups that will need to collaborate and work together to accomplish their daily tasks. Such tasks might be simple enough on Earth, but significantly challenging hundreds of millions of miles away, isolated on another planet, working much of the time in cumbersome spacesuits. Today, all around the world, ordinary human beings, confined to their homes due to quarantine and voluntary social distancing, are facing the psychological challenges of isolation. These challenges will be even greater on a new frontier. Consider the expeditions of Admiral Richard Byrd Jr. during what was known as the Mechanical Age of Exploration in Antarctica, which began in the early 1920s. Among other things, Admiral Byrd was famous for being the first to reach the South Pole by aircraft. Later, he would write of the psychological challenges of Antarctic expeditions 
and of his time at an outpost called Little America. He said, quote, It doesn't take two men long to figure each other out, and inevitably, this is what they do, whether they will it or not. If only because once the simple tasks of the day are finished, there is little else to do but take each other's measure. Not deliberately, not maliciously. But the time comes when one has nothing left to reveal to the other, when even his unformed thoughts can be anticipated. His pet ideas become a meaningless drool. Even at Little America, I knew of bunkmates who quit speaking because each suspected the other of inching his gear into the other's allotted space. And I knew of one who could not eat unless he could find a place in the mess hall out of sight of the Fletcherist who solemnly chewed twenty-eight times before swallowing. For there is no escape anywhere. You are hemmed in on every side by your own inadequacies and the crowding measures of your associates. The ones who survive with a measure of happiness are those who can live profoundly off of their own intellectual resources. Of course, in more recent decades, new generations of explorers have found themselves in much more comfortable accommodations. In fact, the first set of astronauts to set foot on Mars will likely find themselves with living accommodations far better than those of Admiral Byrd and his men. It is all well and good to look upon the computer-generated imagery of vast cities and greenhouses on the surface of Mars with starships parked in front, as displayed in Elon Musk's public presentations. But what will life actually be like for human colonists on Mars? Consider another outpost in Antarctica, the Amundsen-Scott Station at the South Pole. While a flat expanse of bright white ice appears to extend endlessly to the horizon, the station is not on a low-lying plain. Rather, it is on a high plateau, at an extremely high altitude. The air is so thin, many visitors need to take medication to acclimate. This thick sheet of ice over the entire continent slowly drifts, dragging the entire station along with it. It was in this place in 1911 where Roald Amundsen became the first to plant his nation's flag. He traveled by dog sled, but John Scott, who came shortly thereafter, had a small team of men proceeding on foot, using ropes and harnesses to literally drag their supplies across the ice. Even as their physical health began to deteriorate, they resisted the temptation to discard the rocks that they had gathered on the polar plateau. They were simply far too valuable as a scientific commodity. One would hope that the first explorers on Mars will be men and women of similar physical and intellectual constitutions. Built in 1956, the Amundsen-Scott Station is comprised of multiple heated buildings perched under a large geodesic dome that protects them from wind and snow. There is a gym a dry sauna, a bar, and an extensive library of books and videos. A tiny room called the Skylab Lounge 
with a sizable window can be found atop a narrow staircase. We can certainly hope that in the early days of Mars colonization, that SpaceX's effort to extract water from the Martian soil will be successful. But even at Amundsen Scott, where water ice is abundant everywhere, getting liquid water is not so easy. The slow process of scooping out solid pieces of ice and melting them into a liquid is tedious, meaning that every individual there is permitted a shower only two times a week, for about two minutes each. For newcomers, taking a single lengthy shower on their first day can be enough to alienate their fellow crew members for their entire stay at the base. It's a comfortable enough outpost in such a remote place, but there are psychological challenges as well. One 1982 New York Times article recounted these challenges in detail. A 22-year-old man at the Amundsen Scott Station wrote about his experience, saying that most people would never winter over if they knew what it was really like in Antarctica, stating quite correctly that evacuation for eight months is typically not possible. There have been extreme scenarios where aircraft have been brought in during the winter to brave the frigid, pitch-black conditions to tend to medical emergencies. But even today, this is very rare. On Mars, with the Earth hundreds of millions of miles away, colonists will not be able to evacuate. And even sending a single message back to the Earth could take 20 minutes. At a Mudson Scott, sometimes radio contact with friends and family members serves to exacerbate isolation rather than to assuage it. A Navy psychiatrist is used to screen potential crew members. Flexibility and introversion are seen as desirable. Despite all of the hardships, spending a year at the base is an incomparable experience. The perpetual winter night is the clearest sky on the planet Earth, with a rich tapestry of thousands of stars, accompanied by dazzling, brightly colored auroras. One medical doctor named Andrew Cameron called his year-long stay at the base the greatest year of his life. Every crew forms its own social system, its own sense of humor, and its own social cliques. Some traditions at Amundsen Scott might seem downright bizarre to outsiders. Consider the 300 degree club. Just after midwinter, when the temperatures outside are over 100 degrees below zero, the crew proceeds to an extremely hot dry sauna, wearing only their tennis shoes. After 15 minutes, when they are sweating profusely, the crew members leave the protection of the base for a short walk, naked, to the precise point of the South Pole, some 100 meters away. They pose for a photograph, and then they walk back, being careful not to slip and fall on the ice. The thin layers of sweat and their naked bodies offer just enough protection. It is a ritual that all crews practice when they winter over. 
future crews on Mars will have their own social systems, their own culture, their own heroes, and their own traditions. As we approach the end of today's journey here at Universe University, perhaps some of our listeners might see life on Mars as a very bleak existence for the men and women who will go on the journey. But there is one last anecdote about life on the planet Earth's most remote continent that demonstrates the reality that future colonies on Mars will represent not only a triumph for science, engineering, and technology, but for the human spirit itself. Universe University recently spoke with 32-year-old Augustina Luski. As a child, she had a rare opportunity to live at Base Esperanza. The Argentine outpost is one of only two civilian settlements in Antarctica. The base's motto is Permanencia un acto de sacrificio. Permanence, an act of sacrifice. This is Luski's account of her childhood in Antarctica. My father worked for the Earth Science Department of the Argentine Antarctic Institute from 1984 until this year when he retired. In total, he has been on 53 Antarctic campaigns, the equivalent to 11 years of working and living in Antarctica. In 1998, he was given the opportunity to travel with his family to base Esperanza, which is the only Antarctic base where families live for a certain period of time. My father was in charge of the seismological station at the base that measured earthquakes. My mom went along as my dad's assistant to help him with his work. The majority of people there were family. Everyone seemed fairly normal, decent, kind people. I was 10 years old, just one of 12 kids. Only three of them were around my age. We all became friends immediately and that friendship has continued to this day. There was a small school there it was the same as going to school anywhere, except, of course, there were very few students. In my classroom, six of us were divided into three groups because we were different ages. Usually, we walked to school unless there was a bad snowstorm outside. On those days, a special vehicle came to pick us up. If there was a storm outside, it usually meant that the snow would be way above our heads. If weather was really bad, class would be canceled for the day. My favorite place on the base was called the casino, but it wasn't a real casino, just a place where the 65 people on the base gathered to eat pizza on Saturdays, watch movies, and play games like pool and ping pong. Birthdays and holidays were also celebrated at the casino. My friends and I used to play pool there all the time, and we got pretty good at it. When we weren't playing pool, we went hiking, played in the snow, walked on the frozen sea, watched movies on VHS tapes, and had sleepovers. Sometimes at night, we gathered at the lighthouse to eat snacks and tell scary stories. We were the happiest kids on earth, and I think I speak for most of us when I say that was the most precious time of our lives. I loved to watch the Adelaide and Papua penguins with their babies. I used to go with my dad to do field work, riding on the back of his snowmobile. The view of the Buenos Aires Glacier was breathtaking. We used to snowboard down. The day we had to leave the base was one of the saddest days of my life. My friends and I cried a lot. Going back to everyday life was very hard. I remember talking on the phone for hours with one of my friends, crying and remembering our time there. 
It has been 22 years and I still miss Antarctica with all my heart. Sometimes I can't help but cry when I look at old photos from my childhood. If I had the chance, I would go back without even thinking. If there's one person I know who could live on Mars and be happy doing it, it's my father, but this would only be possible if he were there with his family. He used to say that during our stay at Base Esperanza, he had to pinch himself every day because he couldn't believe that his family was by his side. I personally have always been obsessed with space travel and life on other planets, so I'd be happy to go on such a journey. I think that people who would have the chance to go to Mars or some other planet should not be sentimentally bound to Earth. It would be hard to bear without deteriorating their psyche. Luski's account likely bears some resemblance to what life will be like for the first children to grow up on another world. It will be a true, intelligent, technological civilization of Martians on the Red Planet. We hope you'll join us for a very special after-talk next week, an in-depth discussion with the brilliant Dr. Robert Zubrin. Dr. Zubrin sometimes quotes the great historian Frederick Jackson Turner, and it seems appropriate to close our episode with that historian's words. In 1893, Turner wrote about the American intellect, and Americans might very well be the first humans to set foot on Mars someday, but Turner's words will also apply to the first Martians, whoever they may be. Turner wrote, quote, To the frontier, the American intellect owes its striking characteristics, that coarseness of strength combined with acuteness and inquisitiveness, that practical, inventive turn of mind, quick to find expedients, that masterful grasp of material things, lacking in the artistic, but powerful to effect great ends, that restless, nervous energy, that dominant individualism, working for good and evil, and with all the buoyancy and exuberance that comes from freedom. These are the traits of the frontier. <laughs>